0: thanks for spending time with Fusion Community Church through our podcast. These can be accessed anytime through iTunes or on our website, fusioncommunity.church. We hope you enjoy today's message from Pastor Andrew Fetter. Young man, there's no need to... Sorry, I didn't do that the other two, but it's hard not to sing that song, right? I want to start with sharing with you a story. As he laced up his boots and put on his jacket, the rugged rancher paused to flip the lights off in the kitchen before leaving the house that morning. The sun wasn't up yet, but he was already fast at work. He stepped down off of his porch and turned to the side towards his driveway where his old beat-up farm truck was parked, and he was heading to the same place he headed every other morning. To the corner of Main Street and Elm at the center of town. There was a vacant lot there where every morning, starting at about 5 a.m., the lot would fill with men of all ages. Young men who were single, husbands, dads, even grandfathers would be standing all together no matter if that day was going to be sunny and warm or rainy or cold and snowy. These men just wanted to work an honest day's work. And provide for their families. They didn't have steady jobs with guarantees of employment Monday through Friday. But every morning would be filled with hope that there might be a job for them that day. Although most days there were more men than there were jobs to go around. Each one of those men were praying as early as possible. Some wealthy landowner or business owner would swing by that lot. And and invite some of them to come and work for just the day. A hard day's labor so they could put food on the table for their family. And that day, after climbing in his beat-up old pickup truck, that was exactly the goal that the rugged rancher had, and that's where he was heading. When he arrived, there was a small group of men hoping that an incredible opportunity might present itself that day, and they had no idea what was about to happen to them. The rugged rancher pulled up in that rusty old truck. He rolled down his window. Yeah, it was one of those kind of windows. And he offered one gold coin To anybody that would like to come to his vineyard and pick grapes. And without skipping a beat, six guys almost trampled each other to get in the back end of that truck. A gold coin for one day's work? It wouldn't make them rich, but it was more than they'd hoped to receive that day. About three hours later, after the sun had risen with far more work than just six men could accomplish, the rancher decided to leave his vineyard and head back into town to see if he could find other guys looking for a job. And although there were no specifics arranged, when he arrived back at that empty lot, there were guys willing to work. And so he invited them into the back of the truck and said, hey, if you come work for me the rest of the day, I'll make it worth your while and I'll give you what you're worth. I'll reward you for it. Just trust me. At noon, halfway through the workday, the rugged rancher went out again for more laborers. And he found more in the lot waiting to work. Then again at 3 p.m., with only three hours left in the workday, he decided he'd go out to see if there were a few more still wanting to work. And sure enough, there was. And then at 5 p.m., with just one hour left until dark, the rancher made one final trip for anyone else that would want to put in an hour of work. And sure enough, there were a few still remaining, willing to come and to work in his vineyard. When all was said and done, over 20 men chose to work the rancher's fields that day. And as the sun was setting, the boss spoke to his foreman and, and said to line the guys up before they dismissed them so they could receive their pay. Specifically, the rancher instructed the foreman to line the men up from last to first, meaning that, that those who were most, the most recent employees that had only been there for an hour, put them at the front, then those that had been there three hours next, then six, then nine, then 12. And so those who arrived early in the morning would be at the very back. And so with a stack of gold coins in his hand, The rancher began to hand out the pay to each worker. To those first in line who were last to arrive, who worked just one hour, he gave them a gold coin. To those who came at 3 p.m. and worked for three hours, as they approached the front of the line, he handed them one gold coin as well. To those who came at lunchtime and those even at mid-morning, when they got to the front of the line, he gave them each one gold coin. Until finally the six at the back, who had arrived first in the morning, came to the front of the line. And the rancher gave them each one gold coin as well. Now, as you can imagine, at the beginning of the line, those who had only worked one hour, there was great cause for celebration and excitement that they had been generously overpaid for their efforts. One gold coin for only one hour of work. And yet, as the line began to get smaller and those at the back got closer and closer to the front, seeing what was going on ahead of them, that excitement and jubilee began to fade. As they got closer to the man handing out the money, a growing frustration was bubbling within them. They thought if the boss was handing out one gold coin to the men that only worked one hour, they assumed they'd get far more after spending an entire day out in the heat serving. Yet the rancher continued all along to only hand each one man one coin. One of the men finally couldn't keep quiet any longer, began to question the rancher. Excuse me, sir, this doesn't seem fair. These last few men worked only one hour and they're receiving the same amount that the six of us are receiving after spending all day in your vineyard carrying the burden of working in the scorching heat. Another one spoke up after seeing the courage of that one and wanted to add to the conversation. He said, sir, you have made those who, who gave so much less equal in value to us who gave a whole day. That isn't fair. And immediately, all the men that stuck around at the end of the line were grumbling. They began to shake their heads in disagreement, feeling that this behavior was incredibly unjust, waiting for the rugged rancher to respond. After a moment of silence, the rancher took inventory of the room. And then he asked the six men who he'd met earlier that morning one question. He said, gentlemen, when I pulled up to you in my rusty truck on the corner of Main Street and Elm, what contract did we agree to for your labor today? The six men immediately looked at one another, kind of hung their head in despair, and then one spoke in a quiet voice, "Sir, you offered us one gold coin for one day's of work." The rancher looked at the men eye to eye, and for 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 just a moment or two, and then spoke up and he said, "This friend, I'm not doing you. I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for one gold coin? Take what belongs to you." And go, I chose to give this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? On my ranch, the last will be first, and the first last. Now, this is a more contemporary, kind of expanded version of the parable Jesus told in Matthew chapter 20. If you weren't aware, in Jesus' version, there was no rusty pickup truck with an old school roll-down window, right? didn't happen back then. But, but this is called the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. I would assume that throughout the story, before connecting it to something Jesus told, you probably found yourself like heartbroken and irritated on the, on the unfairness on the part of the rancher to pay all those guys the same amount of money, even though the amount of work that they accomplished was so vastly different. One thing we've seen over this last year in our nation is a passion for justice. I believe one of the most profound pieces of legitimate evidence that God is real and that we've been created in the image of God is the fact that from birth there's something inside of me and something inside of you that just kind of screams out of our heart. It just explodes out of us when someone we care about is being treated unfairly or unjustly. And you don't have to be a Jesus follower or a person of faith to be passionate about justice. It's embedded deeply within human beings to want to come to the defense or to right the wrongs of injustice. This has been evidenced over the last year in a big way in that people on all sides of issues are declaring and trying to identify and address injustices. Whether they're religious or irreligious, conservative or liberal, young or old, you have seen this deep-seated need for justice. It's a part of how God has wired us like him. Because we understand scripture says God is just, perfectly just. He he has absolute rights and wrongs that he upholds. And I don't know where my kids learned this phrase. Because never once did me and my wife sit down and teach them to say, Dad, it's not fair. It's not fair. Right? I don't know which one of you did it, but you're in trouble if I ever find it out. You taught them this. And they say it all the time. Just this week, uh, on Friday, our, our middle daughter, it was her birthday. She turned nine. And so it was a Friday, you know, normally during school nights, they don't watch TV at night. We said, well, let's watch a movie. We'll let Kaylee pick it because it's her birthday. Immediately, the first thing, I won't throw them under the bus. One of the other daughters said, well, I didn't get to pick a movie on my birthday. That's not fair. It's like, yeah, but you've picked movies many different times when nobody else in the family wanted to watch a movie. So this is her birthday. She gets to pick. But there's just this unjustness that's a part of us, right? Like we identify what someone else has given. We compare it to what we have and what we've been given, and it's not fair. We want to speak up about it. Justice is a beautiful thing. It makes us feel like there's an order and a meaning to life. It gives us a sense of predictability that we can know what's coming. It gives us an idea of control, and it puts our mind at peace. And as a result, one of the most frustrating things for us in our faith, even that at times will cause people to withdraw from faith in Christ, is when the way God operates doesn't seem to fall in line with our minds, our ideas of what's just. I mean, in this story Jesus tells, it's interesting that the master, the rancher, pays the men in the order in which he does. I mean, think about it. The guys who got there last are first in line, and they get the gold coin. If, if in the story the, the master had flipped it around, there'd be no problem, Right? Because those in the front of the line would have been the six guys that worked all 12 hours and when they got what was promised to them which was better than that was a good day for them what would they have done they would have been skipping home on the yellow brick road we're off to see the wizard like they would have been happy because that was a good day a blessed day for them but it's only when they're in the back of the line seeing the generosity of the master they're not thinking about the guys who are receiving it they're thinking about themselves and what they're missing out on. The guys who work 12 hours would see their 12 hours of work in their mind was being valued the same as those who only one worked one hour. I mean, what's Jesus trying to say? What's he trying to communicate? Does he want to start a fight? What was his intention? What does he want us to understand? Well, one, one reason I appreciate this story as I was as I was reflecting on it is because we can all we can feel, even though this is a fictional story, it's a parable, we can feel what the guys at the back of the line were feeling, right? Because all of us have been guilty at one time or another, maybe even already today, of comparing ourselves to, someone, what's, to what we have or we've been given, to what someone else has or been given. And it can be superficial stuff, it can be deeper stuff. We've probably done that with the stuff that we own, right? And whenever we compare, what we're doing is we're taking the the details that we know intimately well in our own life, and we're comparing them to assumptions and generalities of other people. So it's never a true good comparison. It's not informed comparison. It's what we know deeply about us and our desires and the motivations of our heart and our intentions, and we're comparing it to assumptions we're making about someone else. So we can compare the car that we drive compared to somebody else or the house we live in. We can compare our appearance right, with someone else our age, or, or someone else that we aspire to resemble, or, or we might even, as we get older, we compare the rate at which we're aging compared to what it seems like someone else is aging. We can compare deeper things like the behavior of our kids to the behavior of other kids and wonder why we're such a screw-up as a parent. Then we compare our, our parenting to that of other, our, our kids' friends' parents, and we just assume that what happens behind the scenes is why their kids are the way they are, and what happens in our life is why our kids are the way they are. We compare our battles with sickness, Right? I mean, beyond a shadow of a doubt, I know there are those that have been incredibly cautious and safe and tried to be intentional and wise during COVID, and and yet many of them end up contracting COVID. And then there's other people that are just kind of loose and free and and, and don't really consider all those things and put themselves in in groups, and, and it seems like they don't get it. We compare our career path to others, how we advanced and how they've advanced, doors that open for us compared to doors that open for them. We compare our place in life in the later years to those younger than us, us, and sometimes we think that they're further along than we are. We even compare ourselves, if you're a follower of Jesus, to those who are not followers of Jesus. You know, we're trying to honor God, trying to worship God, trying to obey Him. We're, we're, We're giving financially to the ministry of the church so that other people can be rescued from their sin. And yet we look at other people that, that, that don't follow God, don't honor Him, don't obey Him, don't give to the church and ministry, and yet it seems like they're doing better than we are. Or we look at the fact that maybe in your story, you lost your mom or dad when, when you were very young and, and you had that pain and that grief of them not being in your life through your formative years. And you compare yourself to somebody that still has their parent, it's met their grandkids, your heart aches. Or you've experienced the impossible grief of losing a son or a daughter way, way too early. And you experience that loss every single day that they're not here. And then you look at others and you're like, man, they just take their kids for granted. Comparison is hard when we know the gold coins we have in our hand. And we compare them to the gold coins we see in other people's hands. And inevitably, even as people of faith in Jesus especially as people with faith in Jesus, we can allow our focus on what we don't have to start to develop a bad theology in our minds. And we can approach Jesus with a spirit of, God, I think I deserve more blank. God, I think you've shortchanged me. I mean, look at what all I'm doing for you. Look, look at, I'm trying to follow you. I'm trying to worship you. I'm trying to honor you. And yet things keep going bad. That was the spirit of those laborers with the rancher. They showed up on time. They were there before the sun came up. They worked all day. They'd been paid first. They would have been so excited. They wouldn't have cared what the other guys got. But once they saw that their work was being valued the same as others, it showed that what they believed was the master owes me more. Very quickly, I just want to run through five emotional clues that we think God owes us something. These are things we feel. Sometimes they're things we feel for, for months or years that we carry forward. And as we continue to sit in those feelings and we don't begin to address them, it develops this false theology in our heads and we start to think, God, God, you owe me. You owe me more something. And these are five words that you know, you're familiar with. But I think this is a different way to look at them because they poke beneath the surface of what we're, our roots. Which kingdom our roots are in. So the first one, the first emotional clue that I believe God owes me something is jealousy. In this story, Jesus told these workers are jealous of what the late workers got because they think they're more deserving because they work longer and harder. They gave more so they should receive more. You ever guilty of that? I am. I mean, you ever have those thoughts like, well, why'd they get that opportunity? I didn't get that opportunity. Why is it she's getting married and, and I'm still not married. Well, why did, did, was it just easy for them to have kids? But for us, man, we're just struggling. Well, why is it, you know, they're, you know, they're not having the same battles with health that I'm having? Why do they keep looking so young and healthy? What are they doing? I'm not doing. Why did he get the job? Why did she get the job? They didn't even consider me for the job. I deserve these things just as much as they do. But see, this begins to put us in a mindset and a spirit, a mentality. God, you owe me something. And that mentality is born out of just frustration with the day-to-day in the broken world around us. I, I adore what Pastor Tim Keller says, how to combat jealousy. Listen to this, it's on the screen. It says, if Jesus didn't complain when he received a life infinitely worse than he deserved, how can I complain when I can experience a life infinitely better than I deserve? All of this... What what it comes down to is what we feel we deserve in life. Jesus didn't deserve the death he got. He deserved to be celebrated as the son of man, king of kings, and lord of lords. But he didn't complain about it when it didn't happen. He knew in coming, he was coming to lay down his life. And we don't deserve him laying down his life for us, do we? Why do we begrudge? Why do we get irritated when God's blessing is given to others? A second thing is bitterness. In this story, the all-day workers were bitter towards the master. So much so that it led them to have a dialogue and kind of challenge the master. That even though they all got paid the same amount, what they accomplished and produced was not the same. Even though that's what they agreed at the beginning of the day, it still didn't seem fair to them. At the end of the day, they felt like they were taken advantage of, like they were used. I want to give you a private test, something in your own mind that'll identify if you're in bondage to bitterness in a pretty quick way. All right, one question. Name someone you can't stand or wish bad things happened to. Now, if in that second a name or a face popped up, well, obviously it's this person. If you didn't have to think about it at all, it means that there's, that's on the surface of your heart. Just, a, I can't stand that person. Man, if, if they have bad news to share with me, honestly, I'm just kind of celebrating a little. Like if that's you, that's human, So don't feel ashamed or guilty. Your shame has been carried to the cross by Christ. But the problem with bitterness is we can't hide it. And and the other thing is it it infects every other area of our lives. Bitterness just just overwhelms other and damages every other area of our lives. How do we combat bitterness? I mean, the, the Apostle Paul has so much to say about this, but the one that stands out to me is in Colossians 3. He says, since you've been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven. Lift your eyes up. Where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Fix your eyes on Jesus. All he, how much value you have to him. And all he's done to redeem you. And the relationship he wants with you. Put aside everything else of this temporal broken world. This is an upside down life. Then verse 2 he says, think about the things of heaven. It has to affect the way we think. Choose to think about things of heaven. Not the things of the earth. The things that will die and pass away. The, the darkness. The brokenness. The mistreatment of one another. The injustices. Don't allow your thoughts to rest here. And then he talks about who we are. For remember, you died to this life. Your real life is hidden with Christ in God. Listen, do you understand the gospel well enough to be able to make this statement? If all Jesus did was save you from an eternity separated from him, from hell, and everything else in your life was taken, would you not still consider yourself the beneficiary of an incredibly generous, beautiful thing you didn't deserve? It's easy to say, it's tougher to live out the reality of in those times where it feels like we're in the deepest, darkest valley. A third thing, insecurity. An emotional clue in my life that I'm carrying this idea that God owes me something. Even though you may say, well, I don't think God owes me anything. But when we allow these emotions to continue to fester in our lives, it reveals that that there is some part of us that believes God hasn't delivered on something in our lives. If you carry this unconscious idea that God owes you something when you're good or you're obedient or you're faithful, the inverse of that's going to be true as well. You're going to think, well, God's going to punish me if I'm disobedient or unfaithful or sinful. And that means you're living in a constant state of spiritual insecurity. And that's the worst kind of insecurity in the world. Because, see, the the Hebrews in the Old Testament, they understood the Spirit touches every other part of life. Every area of life is deeply connected to our spiritual reality. Our emotions are connected to our spirit, our physical bodies, our mental, our our social, our relational, our medical, like our health, our professional, our financial, all of that flows through the spirit. And so if we're spiritually insecure, what that means is that when good things happen, we're going to think we're being rewarded. And when bad things happen, we're going to think we're being cursed by God. So when your car breaks down again, it's like, yep, that's why, you know, God did this. He he didn't like that I did this other thing. And that's why when you have struggles with your health, well, yep, this is God. He's sovereign. He's in control. He must be saying that I'm being punished, that I did something wrong. Or if a relationship doesn't work or falls apart, or if there's a struggle financially and there's an expense you didn't expect and you don't know how you're going to pay it. It's like all of a sudden, it's just all these things. That It's like one thing after the next, after the next. God, why are you doing this to me? It's because you think if you're good, you're going to get rewarded good things. And if you're bad, you're going to be rewarded bad things. It's a constant state of insecurity. And you'll constantly ask yourself, have I been good enough to get blessed? Or have I done something wrong and now I'm experiencing punishment? Jesus corrects our bad theology. In this story in Matthew 20, he even says, after the first group, he says, I'll give you one denarius in the the text, one gold coin. For a day's work. And those guys jump in the back of the truck, right? He goes back mid-morning. Goes back at noon. Goes back at three. He never says in that story, I'll give you one gold coin for your day work. He says, at the end of the day, if you'll come and work, just trust me. I'll be good to you. Trust me. I'll be good to you. That's the words of the master. To those who didn't start first thing in the morning. They have no idea what the payment will be. They have no idea the blessing or the compensation. This is Jesus telling us, just trust in my goodness and my grace. My blessing to you is not going to be the same as everybody else. Trust in my goodness and grace, and because I'm so gracious and good, I'm actually not going to give you what you deserve. What you deserve is nothing, not me, not anything I have to give. I mean, think about all the other scriptures Jesus talks about. We're no longer condemned, right? We've been set free from condemnation or punishment in our lives. We're told in Romans 8, Paul says that God loves us so much, and he's got a plan for our lives. He'll even take things the enemy does for bad, and he'll turn them to good. What a remarkable promise, Jesus tells us that if we seek God's kingdom first, he'll provide for all of our needs, everything we need. He promises to accomplish that. These promises, they shape the upside-down kingdom life. And it's that kingdom life that gives our soul ah, rest. It's not insecurity of trying to earn things and then thinking about every bad thing being punishment from God. A fourth emotional clue I believe God owes me something is anger. Like the laborer's anger in the parable, when we believe God owes us something, we get furious when he doesn't deliver on the prayer that we ask in the way in which we want it. Even when we experience pain. When we experience pain here on earth, it's so quick for us to get angry because what we're doing is we're expecting this and then someone delivers here and in that gap comes anger and frustration, right? John 16, Jesus actually is teaching the disciples about expectation. He's teaching about pain and suffering. Suffering is going to be a part of this world. Drop your expectations. Recognize it's going to be hard. Persecution is a part of this world. Injustices are a part of this world. Why? Because we live in a world ruled by sin and the enemy of God. He's the ruler of this world. Therefore, all these injustices, no matter how much we try to, to address them or to fix them, there's still going to be another one. There's still going to be something else. Where someone's taken advantage of. That's the the fruit of sin and rebellion to God. Where things don't turn out as we hoped. There's going to be that gap. And in John 16, Jesus is preparing the disciples for what's going to happen tomorrow. He says, in the midst of suffering, understand. He gives the illustration of a woman having a baby. He's like, in the moment, there's so much pain. and, And you just want it to be over. And you can't see your way past it. And it feels like it lasts forever. Until all of a sudden, you hear that baby cry. And there's this incredible joy that fills your heart. So will be the sufferings of this world. When we know Christ as our Savior, we wake up on the other side of this life in eternity with Him. What joy! The laborers expected one coin. That's what they got at the end of the day. But they got upset because their expectations of the Master changed when they saw others less deserving than them receive the same gift when they believe they deserve more. One key to dealing with anger is to reduce the gap. Lowering expectations. And you don't lower expectations just so that it's easier to deal with disappointment. You lower expectations because you realize who you truly are and what you truly deserve. God, I know who I am and what I deserve. I'm a sinner. I'm just saved by grace. And everything other than death is a gift. Your presence is a gift. The next breath in my lungs is a gift. The presence of anger also reveals what we love the most. Because we get the most angry when the things we love the most seem threatened. And then we can quickly identify, is this all about my kingdom? Or is this my heart aligned with God's kingdom and I have a righteous anger for the things God grows angry about? And then a fifth thing, indifference. When you believe God owes you something, when you believe the good things you do get good things and the bad things you do bring bad things, then you think that every good thing you have in your life you've earned. You deserve it. And you tend to be more callous towards those that don't have what you have. And you start to have these thoughts, well, you know what? They're they're just, if they worked harder, they could have what I have. You didn't work like I did, therefore you don't get the same thing I do. And Jesus challenges this mindset in subtle ways, but also fundamental ways, especially in verses 6 and 7. Listen to this. At 5 o'clock that afternoon, he was in town again and saw some more people standing around. He asked them, why haven't you been working today? They replied, because no one hired us. The landowner told them, then go out and join the others in my vineyard. We have a tendency to think that the workers in this fictional story, that the rancher goes and get at 5 p.m., we have a tendency to think like the guys that have been there all day for 12 hours. Well, they arrive later in the day because they were up all night playing video games and they wanted to sleep in and they have bad work ethic and they're lazy. But nothing in Jesus' story communicates that. That's us adding our own commentary and opinion into what the Word of God says. In this, Jesus is saying, they're just as eager as the guys in the morning. But nobody gave them a shot. They've never been given the opportunity. All of us, we will not know until we face Jesus face to face how many opportunities we've all been given in our lives that had absolutely nothing to do with us and the grace and mercy of God only. Because He's generous in ways we don't deserve. I mean, for instance, none of us did anything before our birth to deserve to be born in the United States of America with freedom and with the wealth our nation has unrivaled by any other nation in human history. We've done nothing to deserve that. You've done nothing. I've done nothing to deserve whatever talents or skills or abilities you have. Those are gifts from God. All five of these emotional clues reveal a heart that deeply beneath the surface doesn't even know it's trying to bargain with God. Jealousy, bitterness, insecurity, anger, and indifference, they exist in us at times because we feel like we've been cheated in some cosmic way by God. We feel that this life that we're living, it isn't fair. But I want to encourage you, every time you have that thought, that just bubbles up from within you and and you don't even, you didn't intend it to, but it's just like, you know what, God, this just isn't fair. When you have that thought, preach the gospel truth to yourself. And rather than continue to complain that it isn't fair, pause and reflect and say, and God, I thank you and I praise you that it's not fair. See, if God chose to value fairness, every single one of us would spend an eternity separated from him in hell. But because of love, because of God's love for us, for you. He offers His Son in your place. I mean, the most unfair and unjust moment in the history of creation is when Jesus is crucified. When the perfect spotless Son is slaughtered in our place. It's unfair. It's unjust. But see, our God chose to value grace over fairness because of love. The Bible says in Romans 6, Verse 23, a verse many of us have memorized. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So if we want to get technical about it, that's what we deserve, death. The wages of rebellion to God, the penalty for, for living life our own way is death. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. Anything more than death, the next meal, a warm house, gas in our, the tank of our car, all of that is gifts from God. It's His sheer grace and mercy. And when you really think about this story Jesus tells, and then you zoom out and look at the whole of the New Testament, what you see is that Jesus is the one that worked all day. We came at the last hour, and we're reaping the benefits of the one gold coin Jesus accomplished for us. We sat around and did nothing all day until the last hour. And then not only was Jesus cheated of what he was promised, he was even punished for our rebellion, laziness, and sin. The gold coins that were due to Jesus as the son of the living God, he actually says, no, they're not for me. I want you to give them to my friends, to my brothers and my sisters. I'm going to lay down my life, and I'm going to pay the penalty of their sin so they can be set free. And what are we given? We're given righteousness. Not that we have the power to be right, but we're given right standing with God peace with God because of who he is and because of his love. I don't know about you, but to me, that is some upside down, backwards, generous stuff that is not the world we live in. It's a whole different ethic. It's a whole different realm. That's who God is. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for this day. Thank you so much for your presence in our lives. We thank you for your word. We thank you for these stories, God, that have so much beneath the surface to dive into. You are glorious. You deserve the highest praise. Lord, I don't know what you want to, how you want to lead us in each one of these, in, in in these five things. Each of our lives are different, and yet they speak to all of us. God, would you give us one thing to leave here and to put in place to practice? Lord, your word talks about us practicing our faith, putting into practice what we've learned, not just head knowledge, but reorienting our lives around your word. Would you make it clear the next step in our faith journey you have for us to take, knowing that you've given us the power to take it by your Holy Spirit. In the awesome name of Jesus, we pray.